0: Hi there. It's Wellington, the producer. I'm here talking to you instead of Jane, because Jane is stepping away from the bar. She has to leave to take on a new research opportunity. We are so going to miss her. Me most of all. But as you know from this podcast and others, it takes a team to get this to you. And so we're going to continue the podcast, and we're going to continue to bring you the latest science stories. Some of the next episodes we're planning for Season 4 are going to be about asthma and multiple sclerosis, so stay tuned for updates from the team. The best way to do that is to subscribe, if you haven't already. That way, you'll be the first to know about the new season. I can't wait. Now, in the meantime, we have some episodes we recorded with Jane before she had to step away. We hope you enjoy them. And as always, thanks for listening.
1: There are people out there that say, well, we may be able to live a thousand years. And and every biologist would tell you, well, that's not the goal of what we're trying to do. We're not looking for mechanisms that allow us to significantly extend the lifespan. But we're looking for mechanisms that may allow us to significantly increase health span.
2: I'm Jane Grogan and I'm a scientist specifically an immunologist, so someone who studies how the immune system works. One key part of my job as a scientist is to communicate ideas with other scientists and also with people outside of the field. One of the cool things is this podcast allows me to do both. For the past two seasons, I've had the privilege to speak to some of the brightest minds in research, but I'm not done yet. This season, I'm going back into the bar to see what my colleagues are doing to research some of the most complex diseases and see what they're up to. So grab your favorite drink, get ready to unlock your science brain, and join us for Two Scientists Walk Into a Bar. So how similar do you think we are to worms and fruit flies? Genetically speaking, of course.
0: I think the DNA makeup is like 12% similar to banana for us. So,
1: a fruit fly must be, like, I don't know, 40?
0: Not at all. 80%?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Probably not as much. Maybe, like, 25%? Not similar at all. No, how could we be? Well, the answer is a little closer than you think, and we'll be exploring this in today's show we are calling From Fly Genetics to Human Aging. The story of the science of ageing is really a story of evolution. And to study evolution, it's helpful to look at fruit flies or very similar organisms. Why? Because they're genetically very similar to us. Here to help explain this is a very well-known developmental biologist who uses fruit flies, worms, and other model systems to study ageing and evolution, Henry Jasper. Welcome, Henry. Hello. So, um, a really simple question. Why do we age, or why do cells age?
1: That's a great question, and um, I think I would be lying if I said anybody understood why (laughs) we age. But there are, of course, a few themes, right? And among these themes is cellular damage, is molecular damage. Many cells have a long lifespan. They, you know, we have neurons that live all our life. These cells, of course, get damaged by environmental stressors, by toxins, by radiation, these kind of things. That leads to molecular damage that is usually repaired, but none of these repair processes are perfect. So you end up with DNA repair, for example, that gradually tends to introduce mutations. And so what many organisms have, well, all organisms actually have evolved, are mechanisms that allow you to repair this damage and allow you to be resilient against this damage up to the point when they have reproduced. After that, it doesn't matter doesn't anymore. It
2: doesn't need to protect you anymore. It
1: doesn't matter anymore. You don't have to select for this, right? So now you can see that as humans, we can reproduce when we're 16. Probably we shouldn't, but we, we can. <laughs> it's
2: another discussion. <laughs>
1: but physiologically, you know, there is really, uh, the, the, the body works perfectly. Fit,
2: we're very fit at that very age, fit. evolutionary exactly. speaking.
1: And so we can reproduce. The next generation will spend the next 16 years developing again and reproduce again and so on and so forth right so evolutionarily that's the period where the best physiological conditions have evolved right now we live 50 60 years beyond that age and we're expecting that our bodies will stay the same that's just not the case (laughs) so so the the mechanisms that have evolved to maintain you for 20 years just can't keep up. Having said that though, there is a theory called group selection, which is basically to say okay, um, when you are a community of individuals and resources are scarce, you want to get rid of the old ones because the young ones need the resources in order to then reproduce again, right? So you have a fitness advantage as a population by getting rid of old individuals. I don't know if we want to go And that's a, that, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a valid theory, but there's significant problems with that, that idea. And so it seems unlikely that that's
2: the case. Hang on. You're implying that there's... Um, um, the need to die is just an important for the fitness of the crowd or the herd.
1: When you were living in the cave or, or, <laughs> or on the savannah, nowadays not so much anymore, Right. But as a, so when we talk about the evolution of why
0: we age, then that becomes an important question.
2: Jane? That's well into my producer.
0: So these mistakes or mutations that happen. Are they similar to the mutations that we've talked about before, ones that can cause cancer?
2: Of course, DNA repair is something all cells are doing all the time. It's very natural as a cell divides. It's got to divide its genetic material, and it's got to repair the ends to make sure um, that the DNA stays intact. And when that goes wrong, it can certainly lead to mutations that do cause cancer. So we're talking about degeneration, but yet it's important to remember that in a lab, we can extract a cell and regenerate it. Pluripotent cells are cells like stem cells, which under certain conditions can differentiate into any cell. So it could become a heart cell or a skin cell. You know, pluri means several and potent means to be able. So you can take a cell and it's genetically sitting there waiting to become anything, right?
1: That's right. And actually the most exciting or most surprising and and bewildering thing here is actually that we do have cells that are immortal, so our germ cells. They go generation through generation and just carry genetic material with them and they apparently don't age. And we don't understand why that is. It seems as if there is a way to rejuvenate cells to reset the clock and get cells to be in their prime again, regardless of age.
2: How much is this to do with the cell itself and versus the niche that the cell sits in in vivo, right? Because it's in this protective environment. And if that environment is degrading or changing over time, um, do those germ cells or stem cells become or more amenable to kind of environmental attack? Well, ultimately,
1: in our bodies, the germ cells will be protected in a niche, and these niches do decline, and so therefore, reproduction declines with age as well, because your your reservoir of germ cells declines, right? However, you are able to transfer your genetic information eventually, and we've been doing so for many generations, and so what this implies is that there are mechanisms that allow you to maintain genetic information in, in a pristine way. And we don't understand them.
2: Yeah, so what seems to be happening here?
1: What, we, what seems to be the case is that the clock is reset, actually. There was a recent study in worms, for example, showing that changes in protein function, people call it the proteome, changes in protein function in the germline of the worm are completely reset by sperm factors when the, when the worm is uh, fertilized. And only then an oocyte is generated that then has a pristine proteome again. So there are these mechanisms that seem to be resetting the clock for germ cells to be pristine. We don't know if that exists in humans. We don't know how it works in humans. But it is a fascinating. Thing to consider, a fascinating uh, field of study as well.
2: I think we should take a step way back and talk about kind of genes and how, how genes work and how we study them in a very reductionist sense. And maybe we can go back and start with the history of fruit flies and how fruit flies became an important tool in the biologist's toolbox.
1: Genes ultimately encode everything that makes an organism, right? And that means also that they encode everything that an organism ultimately does physiologically, and therefore uh, we need to find a way of manipulating genes in order to understand what a particular biological process, you know, be it development, uh, be it reproduction, be it metabolism, be it aging, uh, really uh, how, how these processes are controlled and, um, and how um, they are really encoded in our genomes. And, the fruit fly has a long history, more than hundred years of history, in the basic studies of genetics.
2: Yes, and who was the first person to use them again?
1: Um, you know, Thomas Hunt Morgan was one of the first ones using fruit flies, at, I think it was at Columbia at the time, uh, in the early ni- uh, 20th century, where he used the fly to really understand some of the fundamental questions about the theory of heritability, right? How are different traits inherited? And at the time it became clear that what at the time were considered was, was more or less an abstract concept of, an, of a gene, some, some encoding software almost that controls pattern formation, development, function of biological systems, uh, that they, they were encoded in units called chromosomes. And the fruit fly was a, a, a major tool to try and understand how these chromosomes are actually segregated or separated during spermatogenesis or orogenesis and then transmitted to the next generation.
2: And we can manipulate these pathways and biologies gene by gene as well, right?
1: That's right. So, so these classic studies have really led to a whole field of people that were interested in using this tool. and. What they did is they found ways of manipulating genes selectively, of knocking them out, of knocking them down, of overexpressing them, of, of marking them, of encoding certain reporters for transcription, certain reporters for uh, protein localization that allow you to see where the protein that is encoded by the gene ends up. and so. Accordingly, people using the fly as a model system really expanded dramatically. It was a big community of researchers that actually, was very important, were also very collaborative. They would share reagents, they would share tools uh, very openly Uh, without any bureaucracy, and that really accelerated the field dramatically.
2: I know certainly in my field of immunology that understanding the the genetics of the fruit fly was really important in understanding innate immunology, right? Mm -hmm. So how the innate system works to fight, recognize, and eliminate pathogens or, or bacteria, and this was worked out in the fruit fly. Um... And, you know, has been instrumental in us understanding kind of the germline mutations that are important mm-hmm. for innate immunity. It's actually
1: a funny story, right? Because it's one of these examples of serendipity in, in, in science, which is that uh, the initial mutation of a receptor for peptidoglycans, for, for bacterial um, antigens, was actually, or patterns, was actually uh, found in a screen for genes that control development and the embryonic phenotype of that receptor looked great to the researcher who was german and so she called it toll toll means great or e- exciting right and so the Toll gene ended up being the receptor for, which in, during development has particular functions, but later in life it actually acts as a receptor for, for uh, bacteria-derived patterns.
2: Right, pattern recognition receptors.
1: And it was the founding member of the Toll-like receptor family.
2: Which also and, brings us to the point that fruit fly genes have very funny names.
1: That's right. <laughs> yeah, the, the <laughs> community was very creative in doing this because ultimately when you imagine, early on, you did these screens for, let's say, eye colors, or the screen for developmental patterns, uh, and you end up, what you end up with is a phenotype, right? You, you really, you, you just look at, for example, a, um, an embryo, the fly embryo has to close its dorsal side during development. If that fails, you end up with an embryo shape that is open, looks like a boat. So you have uh, genes that are called kayak, you have genes that are called slipper, you have a number of other genes, that names I don't remember right now. But yeah, this is, this is what ultimately they came up with simply because they couldn't... There was no system of nomenclature, right, for genes that you didn't even know what they were. We only knew the phenotype.
0: Jane, what are some of the other funny names?
2: Oh, you're putting me on the spot. Uh, let me see. There's Grim and Reaper, two genes that help with apoptosis. Um, dreadlocks, Hedgehog, which we talked about already this uh, season. Indy, which stands for I'm not dead yet, from Monty Python skits. There's Tin Man, Clown, the list goes on and on and on. There are tons. You should definitely look them up. I promise you that you'll start coming up with names yourself and certainly get a giggle out of it. The first time I came across fruit flies in my scientific career was as an immunologist. When I was a postdoc and we were looking at epigenetic modifiers of genes within T cells, and we were trying to look at this very macroscopically with microscopes. But I would go up to the microscope in his lab and there were just fruit flies flying around <laughs> everywhere and escaping <laughs> down the corridors and sitting on people's open sandwiches. <laughs> and, yeah, of course, they were looking problem. at they yeah. were looking at things like chromatone remodelling and polyclone repressors, but, um, yeah.
1: People don't... Uh, so, especially... Scientists that work with yeast don't, don't like to work next to fly labs, because flies like yeast, they go and eat yeast. So if you have your nicely arrayed clones of yeast on your plate, then you have a fly crawling over it, suddenly you have nice colonies in the pattern of the
2: They're, they're contaminating as they footprints. carry from one colony to the next.
1: It's a real problem, yeah.
2: How does the field, and you as a developmental biologist, take this kind of information and then bring it to the studying of ageing?
1: So the study of aging in in fruit flies actually has a a relatively long history. Uh, People have always tried to understand the life history of uh, a specific mutation or or flies with a specific mutation or a specific population of flies um, and try to understand how, for example, dietary changes may influence lifespan. In this case, what you do is you take a larger colony of flies and you ultimately just follow how many animals die over time, and you basically go until the whole population has died out, and that gives you an an aging curve, basically, right? A a, a survival curve of how many animals died at what time point. Usually, the median lifespan of a fly will then be around 55 days, 60 days, or something like that. And so you can then ask questions about, well, if I take the same cohort of flies and I put it on a diet that consists mostly of sugars, what happens to the lifespan? Or you put them on a diet that consists mostly of protein, what happens to the lifespan, right? So these kinds of studies were done quite a lot. And early on, it was very clear that flies, just as many other animals, respond very strongly to dietary restrictions. So if you reduce the calorie intake of flies, they will live dramatically longer. So the whole population will live significantly longer than a population that is kept on normal food, right? And so these type of studies were done a lot. What wasn't done so much yet were explorations of the genetics of aging.
0: Chain worms, flies? I'm still not quite exactly sure why we're studying worms and flies.
2: I know, it feels a bit tangential, doesn't it? They're what we call key model organisms. Simply, when there's a complex biology we're trying to work out in you know, in science, it's often really useful to reduce it to some Uh, minimal variables and parts Um, and so if we can conduct experiments to understand how a gene works or how um, a a chemical works on a set of genes, having a defined system is really important and so we know how fruit flies uh, um, reproduce and develop, we know this in worms too, so we can study something in a very reductionist setting and then take that information and bring it back out to say the human population or complex disease and see if we're right. In model system, we try and reduce complexity, right, to understand how the genes work and how we can rewire cells. But when we take that learning out back into the human population, you start to have um, added complexities to that, other things that are signaling into how a cell reacts. This can be anything from environmental factors to other genetic set points within a human or how even human beings you know, relate to each other.
1: It is It is absolutely very complex. and and. One of the biggest misconceptions when it comes to aging research is that if we say a particular perturbation, being environmental or genetic, extends lifespan, what we actually mean as scientists is that at the level of a population, you get a statistically significant increase in median lifespan of the population. So
2: you get outliers either side still, right? That's
1: right. It's a normal distribution. Yeah. For, for each individual, it doesn't mean anything, right? There's still a chance that you will die early, and there's a chance that you die much later. But, but of course, your, your overall probability of death will be extended or not. And so, so that's always an important point to make because uh, it's easy to... Mischaracterized results, especially in the popular media, right? When, when uh, a new study comes out that says, "Well, you know, eating more protein makes you live longer." Well, eat chocolate, know,
2: you'll live longer. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah there's, there's many things that make you live longer, but uh, ultimately, one has to really look back at wh- how were these data really obtained, right? And um, and so yes, it is complex, but surprisingly, and that's really one of the exciting things about aging research over the last twenty five years. Surprisingly, the field has managed to identify evolutionary conserved mechanisms that are true for a variety of different organisms, suggesting that these are core mechanisms that influence longevity.
2: What are some examples of these core mechanisms?
1: One example is uh, the insulin signaling pathway, right? Which was actually identified as a, as a regulator of longevity in the worm, in C. elegans. Again, in genetic screens. So uh, the fruit fly is one of these model organisms. C. elegans is another one, the, the, the nematode worm, uh, which really developed a little bit later than the fruit fly, but it's, but it's equally powerful in terms of modulating genes, regulating uh, gene function, and asking questions about how genes influence phenotypes. Right? Uh, and so, so initial screens on longevity, the worm lives, lives actually less than the fly, so it lives about two weeks only or 20 days and you can therefore do relatively large-scale screens for longevity, it was, it was found that there is a mutation that allows the worm to live three times as long as normal. And over the years, it turned out that that mutation is actually a mutation in the insulin receptor homolog of the worm. It was then shown a few years after that that the fruit fly insulin receptor also influences longevity in just the same way. If you reduce its function, you get longer lifespan. And it was then shown also in mice that conditions in which you have reduced insulin signaling lead to longer lifespan. And it turned out that all of these mechanisms, all of these receptors were ultimately influencing the activity of a transcription factor called FOXO in all three different organisms. There are even mutations in FOXO in humans that have been correlated with longevity in specific populations of humans. So, there are molecular mechanisms, but also generally adaptation mechanisms or physiological mechanisms that uh, are significantly conserved between different species, you know, from worms to humans, that influence longevity. And that means, in principle, that we've come across a core regulator that we need to understand better and that we may be able to use for intervention studies, for you know, target specific, the receptor, for example, or target kinases downstream of the receptor with a small molecule, with an antibody. And that might allow us to increase, I would say, health span rather than lifespan.
0: Jane, okay, speaking about caloric restrictions, You are not suggesting that I need to go without food to make it to a 1,000 years
2: old. No, of course not. These are just model systems that we're talking about. I think what's key here in the example that Henry just gave is that we can um, use these model systems to identify key evolutionary genetic pathways that help us live. So, Henry, I really need to ask you this, because I'm sure you get this a lot, because I do. Is this discipline really about uncovering the fountain of youth?
1: Yes, so the aging field, of course, has a reputation. And that reputation is usually, uh, usually emerges from the fact that there are people out there that say, well, we may be able to live a thousand years. And, And every biologist would tell you, well, that's not the goal of what we're trying to do. You know, we're not trying to... By understanding ageing, that's the first goal, right, we want to understand ageing, but by understanding ageing, we're not looking for mechanisms that allow us to significantly extend the lifespan, but we're looking for mechanisms that may allow us to significantly increase health span. What is meant by this is that you're trying to understand why we have an exponential increase in the onset of a wide range of different diseases as we age. You know, think about cancer, think about Alzheimer, think about uh, any neurodegenerative disease, think about uh, uh, things like muscle frailty and so on. All of these are things that you don't even think about when you're 40 or 45, with the exception of some pediatric cancers and so on. But by and large, at least at my age, I still feel healthy and I don't think about these things. When you are 55, 60, 65, you have to start thinking about these things because people in your age group start to experience these diseases.
2: So it's a balance of mortality and morbidity in some sense, right?
1: Right, so what I'm trying to talk about right now is morbidity specifically. And what we all know that as our whole population becomes older, the percent of the population that is experiences these morbidities is increasing dramatically. And so, you have to think about the fact that for most of human history, we never were getting that old, right? Or the vast majority of us would never get that old. Now we are in a a period where, regularly, people become 80, 85, 90 years old. And so, nevertheless, the aging process has not changed, and what happens is you end up with the onset of these morbidities at an age where you still have 30, 40 years to go. And so this period, this period of morbidity is something that comes at extreme cost to every individual, but also to society as a whole. And the hope is that by understanding why we have this age-dependent onset of morbidities, we may be able to identify the mechanisms that we need to tweak in order to allow these, this onset to be later.
2: And when we think about, or you in the field think about, what it is we want to tweak, it, it's complicated, right? Because right. you've just highlighted that, you know, by studying some of these model systems, we can identify conserved, evolutionary conserved nodes that underlie pathogenesis, such as, you know, insulin-insulin resistance and the metabolism pathway. Um, and understanding those early means that we could potentially intervene with that pathway or processes associated with that pathway to prolong aging or prevent these diseases from coming on or for treating cancers. I think, though, that um, it's the regenerative part, right? So what do you do when when aging populations present with diseases with which we can't just cure them or we may be able to stop them from progressing, right. but from actually repairing those is a very different right. scenario.
1: Right. So, so a lot of the... the studies in the aging field have focused over the years on trying to delay the onset, as I mentioned earlier, delay the onset of these diseases or slow them down. That may get us to a point where, as a population, if we really apply these interventions, as a population, we may have a significant, what you would call a compression of morbidity, a reduction in this period of morbidity. However, in many cases, you will still have a scenario where Tissues have degenerated to a point where slowing down the disease is not going to functionally recover you, but it's going to just keep you at that same level. Age-related macular degeneration being a good example, right? Once you get a diagnosis, you are already at the, damage the point, is done. yeah, where where the damage has been done, and slowing it at this point may be useful, but it's not going to bring vision back. Right? And, so, and this is true, of course, with you
2: know most of the neurodegenerative diseases as absolutely, well. Absolutely, right? exactly.
1: And so you have two options there. Either is to identify the individuals that will get these diseases earlier and then intervene, which is really difficult. Or you have to find ways of restoring tissue function. And the way to do this would be using regenerative approaches. The interesting thing about regeneration, though, is then intrinsically our body has the capacity to regenerate. Because when we are young, it always had the capacity to regenerate, maybe with the exception of some specific tissues like the retina, where photoreceptors, in humans at least, cannot regenerate, but in lower organisms they can. But nevertheless, there are many tissues in which we have stem cells, endogenous stem cells, that are able to regenerate.
2: What do you mean by every tissue has a capacity to regenerate, or every organ has a capacity to regenerate?
1: Most of our tissues, contain an endogenous population of stem cells, which are cells that are not yet differentiated. They have some multipotency, which means they can give rise to different types of differentiated cells. Um, they have a self-renewal capacity, which means that they can divide and generate a new stem cell. And they're commonly in a more primitive state and are maintained in this primitive state. And they're usually protected by a niche as well microenvironment that allows them to, for a long time, maintain this, this, this state. In response to tissue damage, often these cells get activated, and they are the ones that really ensure that your tissue can properly repair.
2: And this is very different from just normal cell growth and turnover and differentiation. This is a unique population of cells that can be called upon when the body needs it, so to speak.
1: That is correct, that is correct. However, one has to also remember that What we would call normal repair or regeneration, ultimately has always had to do with stem cells. People just didn't realize it so much, right? So in the skin, for example, there are skin stem cells, there are follicle stem cells. Uh, In the muscle, there's a population of stem cells that when you actually get an injury to the muscle, they get activated and repaired. And so over the years, we've learned a lot about how different tissues repair. And in most cases, there is a stem cell population, a more primitive cell population, that becomes activated and starts to generate all these differentiated cells. The critical part about aging here is that with age, in most of our tissues, that regenerative capacity of stem cells declines. And what we need to do, ultimately, in order to ensure that we either maintain regenerative capacity or regain regenerative capacity in an older tissue, is we need to understand why the stem cell ages and we need to intervene at that point.
2: Okay, so how do we do that?
1: You can do this by intervening directly and try to activate the endogenous stem cell population, or you can do this also through processes that are now called reprogramming, where you take a differentiated cell, for example, the fibroblast from the skin, you put it in culture, and you induce a pluripotent state, this is called induced pluripotency, IPS cells, induced pluripotent stem cells, that you can then differentiate again in culture into a cell of choice, and you can retransplant that back into the patient. That has been done with a variety of tissues, it has a lot of promise, has also a lot of challenges, but it's, it's an area that has grown over the last 10 years dramatically and really suggests that if we can control that process properly, if we can also control the ability of cells to integrate into uh, the tissue of choice, to survive, to evade the immune system, all these kind of things, we may be able to get to a point where we can repair most of our tissues.
2: What are some of the examples?
1: So it's been shown, for example, that the, this, this IPS-induced pluripotent stem cell derived recovery of tissues has been shown for the retinal pigment epithelium, for example, which is the tissue in the retina. It has also been shown for dopaminer- dopaminergic neurons, which are these neurons that uh, are lost in Parkinson's disease. Heart cells. It has been shown in the heart as well, although it's debatable on how functional these cells are when they come into the heart. There's still a lot of technical details to be solved. It has actually been, in, one, in a really dramatic example, it has been shown for the whole skin of a boy, that came to the, to the clinic with the genetic disease, Epidermolysis bullosa, where a specific gene is mutated. And doctors were able to take his cells into culture, repair that gene, grow new skin, and transplant the skin back on the boy who was about to die and he's now running around. And I've seen, you know, I've seen this in the conference. They showed a a video of him playing soccer. The same is true for age-related macular degeneration. The hope is that one can take cells. It's very difficult, but we can potentially differentiate them into at least a a retinal pigment epithelium, which is a support tissue of the retina, but maybe even photoreceptors in the future to bring a whole sheet of retinal cells back into the eye and restore vision that way. There are, we talked about the heart already, but there are ways of also for example restore hearing using um, ways of regenerating hair cells which are the cells in the ear that actually sense vibrations and therefore uh, allow you to hear these usually decline the number of these declines with age and by regenerating them we may be able to restore function in this particular case this wouldn't necessarily go through iPS cells, but more likely through stimulation of endogenous repair processes. So on, on both sides, stimulating endogenous repair processes or taking cells into pluripotency and redifferentiating them, both of these areas are being advanced for uh, a number of therapeutic indications, a number of different disease states.
2: I think the therapeutic potential is, is vast.
1: It is, absolutely. Um, and the question really is how to engage in this and how to really make it work.
2: How, how did you... How, what's your journey? How did you go from biochemistry to developmental biology?
1: Well, I was, I was lucky enough to study in Tübingen, which is a small university town in Germany.
2: I've been there.
1: That happens to have a Max Planck Institute on developmental biology, which is a... An, uh, so the Max Planck Institute is a big society in Germany that focuses on basic research. That institute in in Tübingen happened to have a long history of fruit fly research and on research on on developmental moral systems. And I literally in my second semester in in college went, walked into a lab and asked whether I could work there. Um, And initially I was dishwasher and I was washing dishes in a lab that actually happened to work in Xenopus, not in, in fruit flies, so in frogs. But frogs, were used at the time because there are amazing systems to look at embryogenesis. Because you can look, you know, it's a it's a, it's a transparent egg where you can look at the egg dividing into two cells, four cells. Inside eight cells. the frog. No, outside on the dish. You put these eggs in a dish, you fertilize them, and then you can look at them. And you can sit there and see this thing dividing. It's amazing. So that, of course, hooks you, right? Because now you can actually play around with a developing organism, you can change genes in them, you can ask what are the genes that are driving this developmental process. The limitation with it was, though, that I was, you know, my colleagues, my, my peers were in the lab next door working on fruit flies, and I was there working with these frogs. And while I was able to perturb maybe one gene, they were just screening for all genes to develop. Thousands, yeah, exactly. And I was looking at them and like, saying, I need to start working on fruit flies as well. Sorry about that. So that made, then I decided to go and do a PhD in a lab that actually uses the fruit flies as a model system because I was so convinced of the power of the system and how I could address questions that I had about how genes would drive developmental processes, how they respond to environmental changes and so on and so forth.
2: So where do you think regenerative medicine or developmental biology, or the science of developmental biology is moving? Will we be growing organ cultures? Will we be um, detecting diseases earlier and treating them earlier? Like, how should the students of the future be thinking about this?
1: I mean, I'm I'm quite excited about the the possibilities in regenerative medicine. Um, Whether we're going to grow organs to replace our organs, Um, or whether we're going to stimulate our endogenous mechanisms of repair and regeneration, I don't know. Both areas are being explored. There are even studies now on trying to grow, let's say, a heart in a pig or a kidney in a pig and try to re-transplant them back. So a human kidney, of course, in a pig, and then transplant it back to a patient.
2: Of course, Uh, some of the caveats with that is the immune system that comes into play. Yes,
1: absolutely. So I, I, I wouldn't be able to make a prediction here. My own bias is that understanding endogenous repair processes may help us get there faster, because we can, if we can stimulate or restore regenerative capacity of a tissue by coaxing and regulating its endogenous capabilities, we should, in principle, be less affected by safety issues, by immune rejection, by integration, Deficiencies and all these kind of things, and we should be able to um, probably just intervene in a very specific way that then allows the tissue to take care of itself.
2: So, will we live to a thousand?
1: I doubt it. Um, I, you know, I, I don't see also why we would necessarily want this. We want to stay healthy long. I think that's critical. Um, can we double our lifespan? Maybe. We have done it already, right? I mean, as a population, we are living twice as long as we used to 100 years ago. So we might be able to do that again, but but ultimately, it becomes irrelevant if we're not able to maintain health. And that's ultimately what we need to do. And what happens then, we'll see. But, but as a, as, a, as a medical community, I think the, the, the point is to try and make us live healthy until we come to an end, to a hopefully happy end. If we do live much longer than we're living now, there are important societal questions that need to be resolved, economic questions as well, and, and, and none of this is trivial. So
2: Stay tuned for two ec- economists walking to a park. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Well, Henry, it's been an absolute delight to talk to you today, and um, I wish you all the best with your research and your fruit flies. Thank you so much. um, we look forward to updates from you in the scientific community and academic press in years to come.
1: Perfect. Thank you. It was was a pleasure.
2: It's really exciting to see how the field of evolution and genetics are helping us understand human disease, which includes diseases that develop as we age. So next time you're in your kitchen and you see a fruit fly buzzing around your rotten bananas in the fruit bowl, think about how next-generation aging research is being done with what we learn from those little guys. Cool right? So that's a wrap for today, thanks for listening. Keep telling your science fans about us, find us on social media, download the podcast from your favourite podcast app, and feel free to rate us on iTunes. And now, until next time, for me, it's Back to the Lab.